let's begin. Hi there. This is Wellversed with FSG in partnership with the Los Angeles Public Library. I'm Jackson Howard, an assistant editor at FSG, and I'm really excited to be here for Pride Month to talk queer rights, past and present, um, with two amazing FSG authors, Mark Kavisser and Eric Cervini. Dr. Eric Cervini is an award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus culture and politics with degrees from Harvard and Cambridge. His first book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, came out last week on June 2nd. It tells the story of pioneering activist Frank Kameny and the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement. The Guardian called it a singular achievement and the New York Times called it riveting and eye-opening for anyone keen to have a crash course on LGBTQ politics. Mark Gavisser is a widely published journalist and the author of several books. His forthcoming book, The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers, which I was lucky enough to be the editor of, is out <clears throat> excuse me, on July 28th. It's a groundbreaking look at how issues of sexuality and gender identity divide and unite the world today. Andrew Solomon called it a masterful recounting of sexuality and identity around the globe, while Garth Greenwell called it a wide-ranging, open-hearted, beautifully told account of the radically various states of LGBTQ rights in the world. So thank you both for doing this, and thanks to the LA Public Library for co-sponsoring. Before we get to talking about the books specifically, Eric, considering the massive protests currently taking place in America and in the world in support of Black Lives Matter, I wanted to talk about Bayard Rustin and the influence mm -hmm. of the civil rights movement on Frank Kameny and gay rights. And Kameny's story, as you, you know, write about in the book, hits a major stride in 1968, which was also a chaotic year for our nation. The Detroit riots and protests against Vietnam, for example. Um, can you talk about how Kameny took inspiration from Rustin and Stokely Carmichael and how gay pride ultimately was inspired by black power and how that's kind of manifesting now? Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here in, in conversation with Mark after your years of, of activism and writing. Um, I'm so excited to be here. And, you know, I think there has been a lot of conversation, which is good about, you know, especially about Stonewall and how Stonewall mm -hmm. was a riot and right. was led by trans people of color. And these are important points, but I think focusing solely on one night or even four nights uh, actually minimizes the role and the importance of the Black Freedom Movement and of trans people of color uh, in the development of gay pride and, as you said, gay power. And I think mm. you have to be also telling the stories of people, like you said, uh, uh, Byron Rustin, and his role in not just uh, creating a march, but also being the mentor for Dr. King in the development of a completely nonviolent uh, strategy of resistance that until Rustin's involvement in 56 in Montgomery, King still had guns in his house, right? And right. there were floodlights outside his house because of course he was terrified of, of getting bombed and not until Rustin came in and taught some of these Gandhian principles mm. did uh, King really start embracing nonviolence as a whole uh, comprehensive strategy. And so then tracing that line to Frank Kameny's own efforts, not just picketing in front of the White House, 
but also his development of uh, uh, pride in a legal form, claiming that homosexuality was a moral good, I think very similarly, you can say, well, that was in 1961. What was happening the year prior? Well, you had the successful Greensboro sit-ins in North Carolina, where uh, uh, Black students were reclaiming morality for themselves and showing in a very tangible, uh, uh, visual way that in fact these southern white racists were not beacons of morality like they were for years prior. Mm-hmm. And moving on, Mark, in the pink line, one of your main focuses throughout the book is the ways that so-called pink lines are drawn by countries in regards to their stances on gayness and queerness. And you write really convincingly about the ways gayness is misconstrued and weaponized on the global scale. And you focus in one chapter, Pink Folk Devils, on the intersection of moral panics and queerness. And you quote Stanley Cohen, who defines a moral panic as when a condition, episode, person, or group of persons emerges to become defined as a threat to societal values and interests. And as you write, homosexuality has long been a convenient scapegoat for perceived social ills, or a convenient way to slur enemies, or against which to define one's own righteousness. So... Can you tell us a bit more about Pink Folk Devils and how gayness is weaponized as an external threat to ignite moral panics? Thank you, Jackson. It's great to be here and with you and Eric. Um, l- let me answer that question just by referring back to the story that Eric has just told us about Bayard Rustin and something I read uh, reading his wonderful book over the weekend, which is the way that um, American state agents tried to discredit the March on Washington that Bayard Rustin Mm. organized by referring to his moral degeneracy as a homosexual. And and that's that's a key to the way queer folk are constructed by the custodians of of law and order or or moral virtuousness as some kind of evil that needs to be expunged. And not not necessarily or not specifically because of any kind of religious doctrine, but uh, because the people doing the expunging are trying to find a way, as you say, as you said, to weaponize mm. uh, un- people who have an unpopular or dubious or, or perhaps perverse or different way of being, perverse in the eyes of the majority, to, to define themselves to define themselves as, as good, as pure, as heteronormative, as right. Russian, as American. Right. And in the process, uh, queer people, whether they're queer because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, uh, get uh, blamed for, for some kind of moral decrepitude. And moral panics are instigated against them uh, mm. murderously. And, and it's fascinating, for example, to see how, how they can be instigated in any way. So, so recently, we've seen uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia uh, play this game uh, by, by drawing a pink line against the West and trying to define Russian nationalism by insulating it against the threat of decadent homosexuality coming from the West and corrupting Russia. So you need to find Russians who are the enemies within, who've been corrupted by this Mm. external enemy. And what I find so fascinating about this is the way it's a mirror image of what happened 
in the era that Eric is exploring, the 1950s, in the United States, when during a lavender scare in Washington in the US government, um, uh, Senator McCarthy, FBI Director Hoover were using uh, the threat of homosexuality as a way of expunging gay people like Frank Kameny out of government service because mm. they were vulnerable to being blackmailed or converted by Soviet Russia because of their homosexuality. Thank you, Mark. And, and you know, Eric, the way you write about this kind of enemy from within tactic uh, in your book, you know, that a Republican senator, for example, as Mark is saying, alleging that so Soviets were using a list of gay American government agents to blackmail them for government secrets, um, while Kameny's own uh, Mattachine society was often labeled as, as communist. And so I guess, can, can you talk about what policymakers were so scared of, or maybe in your words, you know, revolted by in terms of gayness um, in regards, you know, to especially the political sphere? Mm -hmm. Well, I was glad that Mark used the term convenient because that's exactly mm. what throughout history uh, homosexuals or sexual deviants or queer people were, where they were convenient political tools. And you have to remember that, yes, of course, there was an underlying revulsion or animus or disgust towards sexual deviants. But at the end of the day, what these these especially these elected officials really cared about was using it as a political tool for other means whether it was advancing their own uh, uh electoral fortunes which was in the case of the republicans in 1950 right. that first uh, moral scare the lavender right. scare that was a very much a political tool uh and that is a tried and true uh, tactic going all the way back to the 13th century, right? Where right. sexual or sodomites at the time were grouped with other religious minorities in order to consolidate uh, monarchs' own power. So this is something mm. that has happened uh, throughout history. But the flip side of that, and the one thing that I think that gives us hope, especially with every all the stories and struggles that, that Mark depicts and also our own struggle here in this country, is that persecution often fosters community in political organizing. Yes. Uh, and that's one thing that, that historians have identified for a long time, that the Lavender Scare uh, gave rise to heroes like Frank Kameny and those who were persecuted then became the ones to lead the charge and also persuade other members of, of a, uh, a persecuted group or minority who may not have realized or recognized that they were part of a larger minority, that in fact, because the state oppressor is categorizing them as a minority or as a certain uh, uh, discrete group, that then they have no choice but to band together and fight back. So I think that also shows you know, a path forward for us as well. Erica, I, I really like the way you describe uh, how persecution fosters community. And I think what's been, what's been fascinating to me in my research globally uh, is the way this is something of a cycle mm -hmm. because persecution fosters community, but queer people coming together to assert their rights also provokes backlash. Mm -hmm. yes. and, um, and, and so often in so many parts of the world, uh, what is considered to be some sort of deep-rooted cultural or or social homophobia or transphobia 
and I'm thinking specifically of, of, of Africa, the Middle East, and, and Eastern Europe, is, is not really as deep-rooted as, as it's presented, but is rather a state kicking back and patriarchs and priests kicking back at a group of people who for the first time are claiming their rights uh, as individuals within liberal democracies. So there's been this really important transition that's been happening all over the world in the last decade or two that mirrors something that happened in the West um, a little bit further back, which is, which is where your sexual behavior stops being something you just do on the down low right. while you lead your button down life, get married, have children, uh, provide for the nation <laughs> in that sort of way. And where mm. you say, no, actually, this isn't just what I do. It's, it's who I am. And because it's who I am, I, I have the personal autonomy to live the way that I choose to with the person or the people with whom I choose and in the way that I choose. And this is profoundly threatening to, to the structures of society and therefore provokes a backlash and, 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 is, and is manipulated conveniently when, when you have these patriarchs and priests, whether they are in the United States in the 1950s or today, or in Africa and Eastern Europe today, who are trying to kind of keep control, keep nationalist control, keep control in the church, keep control in the legislature when the world is 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 globalizing and atomizing and um and borders aren't so solid anymore so you stake your pink line against queers to make a border that frankly no longer exists because of what can happen in the internet due to the digital revolution right mm -hmm. thank you mark and so let's go back to that concept of of kind of adversity and 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 strength uniting queer people and Eric, you know, one notable, I guess, exception to that is in regards to early trans activists like mm -hmm. Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, who were incredibly important and kind of at the center of Stonewall, um, who led that charge and yet understandably didn't feel like they had a place um, in Kameny's movement and had to kind of, you know, actually splinter off and start their own. And so you know, what parallels, I guess, do you see between the early gay, uh, the early gay rights battle and the early trans rights battle? How do they really manifest? And um, yeah, if you could just give us a little, a little background on that. Mm. Well, one, one uh, tried and true uh, part of history also and of activism is that very often victims of persecution then uh, uh, embrace some of the tactics and characteristics of their own oppressor. And right. I think you see that time and time again through history, and you see it in, in my book with, like you mentioned, activists like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, before mm. their own trans organization, they were members of the Gay Activists Alliance, because they right. saw, you know, the term gay was a much wider term. And they saw themselves as part of this larger struggle, which they were. But it was the, you know, the cis white gay men within the Gay Activists Alliance who said, actually, you pose a threat because of your transgression of gender norms. You pose a threat to the image that we're trying to project of respectability, right. of we're just like you. And so they quite literally pushed them out of the movement 
and they had to start in in response their own organization, which was uh, street transvestites originally for gay power, right? Mm. And then once the Gay Activists Alliance refused to support them, refused to participate in their demonstrations, said in executive committee meeting minutes that they were organized by street people, so the Gay Activists Alliance wouldn't be a part of it. Once they realized that they had been betrayed and that actually, you know, yes, they were for gay power, but the gays were not for them, that's right. when they changed the name of their organization to Street Transvestites Action Revolutionaries, right? So that mm-hmm. was not there, very similar to the activists who, you know, Frank Hamney, if he had his way, he would have gone to space and would have been part of the formation of NASA. Right. Um, he didn't want to be an activist. He didn't want to make his gay identity a core part of his entire life and of his activism. It was thrust upon him. And you see that same phenomenon happening within the movement also uh, for the most marginalized who were essentially sacrificed. But as the book shows, it, it's self-defeating. It ended up just hurting the entire community because it was creating these fractures. I think that's a really that's a really important point to make, which is, is that Frank Kameny did not want to be an activist, but was forced to be one, whereas Sylvia Rivera had no choice but to be an activist. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. as you show in your book, um, when the cops descend on Stonewall, the only people they've got something against, on the Stones all in, the only people they've got something against are the trans people, because mm-hmm. they can get them for masquerading as women, which is against the law. And and I was speaking earlier about this, what happens when when queer people decide that they're no longer gonna be on the down low. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really important uh, to bear in mind when one's thinking about the human rights of LGBTQ people is is that there's some people in that alphabet um, who cannot be on the down low. Because of the way they are. And those are the people on the front line. And right. um, there's, there's a saying that, that, that all homophobia is transphobia. And, and I think that there's a, there's a lot of truth to that because um, when society fears the homosexual, what society has in its mind, or when um, John McCarthy or Vladimir Putin is, is, is rallying the faithful, against the homosexual, what's being rallied against is this image of the deviant, of the pervert, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is best represented by a man in a dress. Mm -hmm. Right. And and for this reason, I I see increasingly, particularly as as marriage equality has come into, into play, particularly in the West, and as more and more gay people have come out, and therefore everybody can say they know someone, they have someone in their family or close to them right. in a place like the United States or Ireland who is gay or lesbian, who they love, uh, as homosexuality has been sort of normalized, um, the new frontier, the new pink line has to do with gender identity and, and what it's what the opponents of of, of transgender people called gender ideology. Well, Mark, let's let's continue along along that line because um, for me, one of the most striking observations of your book is how 
new identities may be coined by the West that are designed to provide a sort, a sort of liberation, right, to queer people across the world actually end up um, having negative consequences. So, you know, you think of the folks in your book um, who populate the Indian fishing village, right, who are sex workers and who are third gender people and who do not identify necessarily as trans until that identity is introduced to them. Um, so can you talk, I guess, a little bit about the complications of what happens when, you know, those yeah. identities are maybe spread around? I mean, it's fascinating and complex. And, 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 and the context of it is, is that um, identities are globalized now because of the digital revolution, because of a global right. human struggle, because of mass migration, because of the way people move, travel, come back with ideas. Um, the kind of atomized, isolated community doesn't exist anymore barely right. exists, except in, in the imagination of, of, of right-wing nationalists, like Viktor Orban, who thinks he can cauterize Hungary from the world. Um, so, so you've got people who have always had space in their society as, as third gender or as somewhat fluid. They might be called bakla in... Um, in the Philippines, they might be called Hijras or Koti in India. They might be right. called Gojigen in, in, um, in Senegal. And all these terms mean in some way or another man, woman. And they've got their space in their society. And, and let's not glorify it the way the American queer movement sometimes glorifies Native American two-spirited people. They have their mm. space, but it's quite a limited space. Right, still marginalized. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a limited and it's a, not necessarily marginalized. I mean, I wouldn't say that bakla in the Philippines are marginalized because every hairdresser is, a, is bakla. And bakla are on the main road and in the market. They have their job, they have their space, they're valued. They're beauty therapists and they're beauty queens, but that is it. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot push through that, brass, that, that glass ceiling. So along comes a global LGBT or trans movement and says, you know what? You don't have to stay in this muddy area where you can only be a hairdresser, where you're neither male nor female. Just flip over to a trans identity. Get the hormones, have the surgery if you can afford it. Take on a trans, take on, become a woman. And once you're a woman, a woman, you can be anything. In fact, as a female transgender woman, uh, I am now, one of, one of the activists says, a member of Congress, which is true in the Philippines. She is a woman uh, who is transgender, who is now a member of Congress. She is not a hairdresser. And this is, this is extraordinarily appealing and, and opens horizons, obviously. Mm. But what it does in the process is it, is it transforms what was previously a gender spectrum into something more of a gender right. binary. And right. for those people who are along the spectrum um, through some combination of, 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 of choice or, or just physicality, it's very, very difficult. And um, similarly, for those people, like I'll, I'll tell you very quickly about the Gorjigen in, in, in Senegal because it's a fascinating story. People in Dakar who, who, who for, for decades have male body but present as women and who... Um, live in Wolof society as women and have certain responsibilities that are really valued. Um, along comes AIDS in, in the early 21st century. 
And in the wake of AIDS comes a gay rights movement uh, around reaching men who have sex with men. And, and homosexuality suddenly becomes a topic in Senegalese society. Never spoken about before. It suddenly becomes a topic. Mm. There is the kind of moral panic we were talking about. Homosexuals become folk devils. Uh, they get arrested. They get thrown in jail. Homosexuality is evil and it's wrong. And overnight, like that, the Gorgigan disappear. Mm. Because they are the most visible face mm. of this new perversion that society didn't talk about previously. Mm. But overnight, what was a gender identity that's acceptable, even valued, becomes a sexual orientation that is evil and anti-Islamic. And space right. closes down in Wolof society, in Senegalese society as a consequence. So Eric, let, let's, let's talk about, you know, that, that those consequences of assimilation and, you know, what happens as a result of introducing identity. And, and you know, you write quite a bit about respectability in your book, which is still an incredibly charged word in regards to queer identity and pride. And, you know, you write about how Kamini performed what you call respectable homosexuality. And gay was good, but only a certain type of gay was good. Men in suit and ties, women in dresses, mostly cis people, mostly white people. Um, I love this quote you have from a reporter covering an early protest who describes the protesters, no bottled in blonde men, limp wrists or lisping here, thank you. So why was uh, respectability so important to Kameny, Eric? And do you think he would have accomplished what he did without this notion? Um, and, and who did it leave out? Well, it, it's a good question because, you know, you have to remember, even though they were wearing suits and ties and the women were wearing dresses, it was still a horrifying thing to do. And so I think it's important to remember on a psychological level that if they were thinking of it more as a performance, not just mm -hmm. of, of activism and a performance of uh, citizenship, but also a performance of gender, uh, which you know, you see time and time again in activism where you make your message as palatable as possible to the general public, to the oppressor, right. then at least in theory, then it's, it's much easier for the oppressor or the state to actually embrace what you're saying. My personal opinion is that it's much more of a psychological uh, uh, tactic of the activists, because I think it makes it easier for them to be making the same claims and for them to be uh, the ones holding the picket signs that make these very, very radical claims about homosexuals being just as equal as anyone else. Uh, so I think it made it easier for them. But as you said, on the flip side, it's very exclusionary because, uh, you know, Mark talks about the gender binary and how that's being constructed every day and, and maintained. Well, activists were responsible for playing into that same exact binary and utilizing it as a tool. And what that right. does is if you have a dress code saying that, you know, you, uh, men have to be wearing suits and women have to be wearing dresses, then that is excluding not just uh, uh, people who are trans or who fall uh, somewhere on the spectrum of the gender binary. Uh, it also excludes a lot of other people like, you know, that we're talking about the 1960s that excludes right. hippies, right? Hippies had sure. beards and long <laughs> hair. They were explicitly right. prohibited from participating in these marches. So that's why, you know, 
I write about activism before Stonewall and we have to talk about it and, and be appreciative of the bravery there. But we also have to understand why their movement was so limited and why Stonewall mm. was so important because it didn't create something new. It changed something that already existed and expanded it on a massive scale. You know, as, as you're talking, Eric, I'm, I'm thinking about a book that written by somebody who's, who's, who's certainly one of my intellectual heroes, and I imagine might be one of yours too, and that's Martin Duberman, mm -hmm. um, who wrote mm -hmm. the, 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 the historian of, of homosexuality, who wrote a book called Has the Gay Movement Failed? Uh, right. Oh, yes, yes, and, yes. and the notion, his notion about the gay movement having failed was is that because queer people have become so establishment, or no, I shouldn't say queer people, gay people have become so establishment uh, in the way they've, they've gone indoors, worn those jackets and ties, um, lobbied for marriage equality, got married in churches because of what's been called homonormativity. Um, the, the, the more radical um, notions of the gay movement from the time after Kameny, which was about shaking up society mm -hmm. in very profound ways, shaking up the patriarchy in very profound ways, have disappeared. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of sympathy with that argument. Um, I, I resisted um, marriage for many years myself. Really? Marriage is, is legal in South Africa. And when we did it, we, my partner and I, we did it basically so that I could get his benefits as a United Nations employee, which right. is the reason why most people get married, actually. But, but while I have a lot of sympathy with, with that argument, I also, um, I sometimes find it too easy because I do um, see when I look at, I don't have children. When I look at, at, at my friends who, who have sort of moved to the suburbs and raised families, they, they, they're on a new pink line. They're on a new frontier because of the way they have to deal with, with schools, with clinics, with, with other kids, with other kids' parents, with, with um, normative society. And, and I think it's something we, we don't give enough credit to, how revolutionary it is for queer people to come inside and to put on that jacket and tie. It, it, right. It's not just a co-option. So Eric, then, you know, is there a modern queer, maybe this is a utopia, but a modern queer movement that exists in equal part for gender non-conforming sex workers and also, you know, cis white men who want to put on the suit and tie and work in government and have traditional families. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you can deny that we have made progress. And yes, marriage equality is a good thing because it affords rights that we should have. But I think you also have to tell that story of success and ask who was forgotten, right? Who, yes. who did our ancestors sacrifice uh, in order to make these gains. And I think you see it right now, it, with, especially in America with the Black, uh, 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 Black Lives Matter movement. And you, know, you see a lot of queer Black people saying, well, also remember Black trans lives matter uh, because especially right. that group, those are the people who are dying, right? Those yes. are the people still, right? Like, I, yes, I can go and buy a house and have all the great tax benefits of marriage, 
and live behind my picket fence, but a, a trans person in America is being murdered every two weeks, like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think I, as someone who is benefiting from this exclusion and from uh, these, this prioritization of the picket fence, I need to say, okay, now that I'm there, I have made it, uh, who should I be fighting for? Who should I be using my platform for, my finances for? Um, and I think you see the people who are doing the hard work, whether it's the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, the Sylvia Rivera Law Center, uh, who are on the front lines and have been on the front lines and haven't benefited from all the finances of the Gay Activist Alliance right. and the other white cis gay organizations, now is the time for us to say, okay, you have been on the ground, you have been doing the work, let's funnel, uh, not, not my leadership, not my, you know, organizing, as we saw mistakes being made with solidarity marches in, in, in Los Angeles, but instead funnel my resources and my, my platform right. and my, my, the money uh, to these organizations that already have uh, the infrastructure in place to, to be fighting for Black trans lives, especially. I yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually a great note to end on. Um, just a reminder, everybody. Eric's book, The Deviant's War, came out on June second. You can buy it now. Mark's book, The Pink Line, will be out on July twenty eighth. And this is well versed with FSG in partnership with the LA Public Library. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Mark, for calling in from South Africa. I appreciate it. <laughs> and hope you guys have a great Pride Month, and I really appreciate the talk. Bye.